Welcome to the Mental Models Podcast. I'm George Baxter, and I'm a hedge fund manager for SaberPoint Capital Management. I'm Dan Krawczyk. I'm a neuroscientist and professor at the University of Texas at Dallas. And together we explore mental models. That is how we view the world and what the world gives us for feedback. It's not a brain in a jar. That's the gist. We really appreciate you taking the time to listen to the Mental Models Podcast. We would like you to continue to support us and uh, our efforts here and show us that you do appreciate uh, the information that we share. Uh, And you can do so by buying our book, Understanding Behavioral Bias. It's available on Amazon. and, And if you do buy it, what would really help us out is if you could leave a review. It's available in paperback copy and on Kindle. Both are pretty good value, and we think that uh, you can really explore some of the topics that we touch on here in greater depth. Thank you very much, and we hope you continue to enjoy the Mental Models Podcast. Welcome back to the Mental Models Podcast. Today we are going to talk GameStop. We thought that it, it's enough of a uh, uh, interesting anomaly that it's something that deserves uh, a little bit more focus from us. Yeah, and GameStop for me entered my life um, probably in the last decade pretty potently when games were bought as uh, DVDs and physical um, items were sold at GameStop quite a lot, and it was a really booming business where we could not go near a mall without uh, my young sons wanting to go to GameStop to buy some physical <laughs> packaged game. And then over the past several years, we've seen that drop off tremendously as games are now bought exclusively in digital format. And now it's kind of like uh, everyone wants a Steam card, which is just going to let them buy an electronic asset through the convenience of their Wi-Fi or cabled Ethernet, uh, which is faster. And the, the drive out to the GameStop location itself trailed off tremendously, and uh, business in, at GameStops trailed off. And that led us to this point where at the end of uh, 2020, let's say, GameStop stock is trading very low. And there was a lot of pessimism about brick and mortar stores that sold physical assets in boxes going the way of the dodo bird. Yeah, it's interesting how that progressed. Uh, The bread and butter for GameStop for such a long time was exchange. Uh, People would take a used video game and they'd exchange it to GameStop and then GameStop would resell it after a markup. Oh yeah. And I, I will confess I bought one of the, one of the worst purchases ever uh, <laughs> at a GameStop uh, because I have some nostalgia for snowmobiling in the Northeast when I grew up and there was a awesome snowmobile called the Kawasaki Invader, <laughs> which was developed in 1981 and it had this cool sort of sleek look to it. I bought Kawasaki Snowmobiling, the game, which allowed you to simulate riding a 1981 Kawasaki. I'm sure it's identical. Yeah, I mean, it really struck me as uh, I bought it because I, too, had an eye for these retro snowmobiles from my youth. And it was insane that someone bothered to make this game. It was not fun to play. <laughs> and I got it for like a buck ninety nine. So it was very much, I could see why it was in the uh, has been reused bin. <laughs> and I played it for all of about uh, two minutes and realized this is just a very low grade version of uh, a typical uh, racing, but you're in, you're in what, 
what's a kind of comically dated looking snowmobile environment. So that's the kind of stuff GameStop got away with back in the resale days. But of course, the publishers made no money with that. You know, the publishers uh, got no benefit associated with a resale. Yeah, I'm one of the five people in the entire world that, that had an interest in this for a few minutes. But that at, at the same point in time, you know, when they would go and resale a used game, uh, that was money from consumers' pockets that went into game, GameStop's coffers that did not go into the coffers of the, of the video game publishers. Yeah, and GameStop also had uh, a sort of, it functioned the way a comic bookstore would have at one time where you could buy a lot of figurines of different um, science fiction shows that were popular for a brief time, and then and those would sort of wane in popularity, and they would have to restock all of that. That always seemed like a hard part of the business to maintain because people are so fickle as to what what their interests are at any given moment. You know, now we're in this stage where uh, the video game uh, publishers, they want to go direct to the consumer. They can cut GameStop out so they don't have to sacrifice GameStop's margin. And they can have that relationship with the consumer directly. Yeah, so at the fall of 2020, I thought GameStop was kind of um, wrapping up shop because it had been, you know, basically... Uh, cut out of the out of the the supply chain and seemed to not have a, a big future. Yeah, Dan, I don't think you were alone. Uh, there were a lot of hedge funds that were betting that uh, it was terminal. Uh, in fact, they really kind of overdid it. Yeah, and that set the stage for uh, let's call it February of 2021 and what happened. Yeah, really, really, I guess it was January for the most part where it was mo- most acute, most acute, but. Uh, the short interest, there was a battle between, there's a long thesis that people had developed on GameStop that they were transforming the business that would have more of a, you know, a, a digital, and I'm not terribly familiar with the, the whole narrative, but more of a, a digital presence uh, that it could be a place where you, you people could socially gather and play games. They had some, uh, some uh, stores that they were experimenting with where they would have you know, a floor of computers and, and people could come and play games as a group there. Yeah, I, I, I played some some games on occasion and found that kind of interesting. And it was a way to kind of engage people that you don't get to do fully digitally. Michael Burry, who uh, was of the big short, was one of the people that was able to identify the opportunity of capitalizing the bubble in housing and, and the, prior to the financial crash. Yeah, so he added some credibility to the, the change, the sort of winds of change for GameStop. There was a case to... He did. He took an activist position there and, uh, you know, looked at things like their leases and saw that they, they could walk away from some unprofitable stores uh, and that there was still some value there. That helped set the stage for a narrative that was adopted by the Wall Street Bets crowd. A bullish narrative uh, for GameStop. Of course, also behind GameStop, the short interest. Uh, there were there were hedge funds. Melvin Capital is one that's kind of a, a highlight here. Uh, that were pretty aggressive in their position uh, against GameStop, and you know to some degree, there's a thought that they uh, were kind of keeping a lid on the stock. Uh, that they would just short more if it if it appreciated, and eventually uh, there's a rule on Wall Street where you have to secure borrow if you short a stock. When a a stock is shorted, of course, what happens is the short seller will borrow stock from an existing holder, and then they sell that stock into the market and they receive cash. 
And that cash is used as collateral against their obligation to deliver the stock to the holder that they borrowed it from. But you can't hold this forever if it keeps going up. Right. And you're not supposed to sell the stock unless you actually have borrowed it, like you've secured a borrow. I believe it was 120 or 110% of the outstanding stock was sold short. So there was clearly some individuals or, or institutions that had sold the stock without securing borrow. Yeah, and all of these context factors made this so interesting as this uh, sort of remarkable set of events set, were set in motion. So, yes. so what were some of the, what was the catalyst that kind of really got this going? Is it uh, Wall Street bets? Well, he testified before Congress. He had a, one of the people that it was one of the proponents of the bull case, uh, and perhaps the most famous one. His handle on Wall Street bets was deep effing value. And it wasn't effing, it was, you know, right. the, the other one. Uh, and uh, he also was known as Roaring Kitty on YouTube. That, that name is, yes, yeah, has reached good. fame in a rapid time. Exactly. And, and it was funny to watch his uh, testimony before Congress, because at the beginning he, got, he said that he's not an, an investment banker, uh, and he is also not a kitten. It, it really has. It's really the stuff of like a, a movie plot, isn't yeah, it? It reminds sure, me of Silicon sure, Valley. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure Michael Lewis is crafting a book around this and the, and the movie to come. Yes, yes. But sure. uh, the, on Wall Street bets, uh, basically there was a herd that was developed uh, around this GameStop thesis and uh, the desire to punish Wall Street uh, and uh, to squeeze the shorts, the, insta- the hedge funds that were short the stock. Yeah, very much a tribe mentality around it, right? Sort of an in-group, uh, sort of a rebelliousness. And a, um, I, I think some people jumped on that bandwagon as a way of sort of like an Occupy Wall Street notion of like, yes. we can finally take down these greedy uh, institutional investing groups and, the, and we're going to just pull this all, you know, there's a sort of added fuel to that fire as, as you see on, with online behavior, uh, things can kind of start to spin in a direction where people jump on a bandwagon. Yes. And so this, you know, started to capture a certain degree of momentum. And there was this notion that if everybody bought GameStop, they would make money, uh, but they couldn't sell. So there's this, this term, they say, they call it diamond hands. And similar language was used as pretty much the same language when on some of the Reddit boards associated with Bitcoin. Uh, this notion that you buy it and you do not sell it. Uh, and if everybody does this together, then the short squeeze will cause it to go to an almost infinite price. Yeah, and that requires a great deal of trust that the other people involved are going to stay the course with that strategy. It's a prisoner's dilemma. It is, so, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> We've talked about this a number of times, the, <laughs> the defect or stick with the plan and you're kind of it's all uh, sort of a trust game. Right. If everybody uh, sticks to the plan, uh, then everybody benefits the most. But if, uh, you know, if you're going to uh, not stick to the plan, you want to be one of the people that does that early. You're all in a big lifeboat together. And the, the problem is with, with the Internet, everyone's separate and anonymous. So they call, the, uh, typically when you, when you choose to defect in a trust game, let's say you're in an experimental context, it, you tend to be more trusting and more apt to be loyal if you have a history with the people. And with Internet folks using you know, acronyms for their names, it's, it, they're, they're anonymous. And the, the, 
the you know, defecting against those people is probably a lot easier than it would be if you were physically together. Now, this, uh, you know, it's interesting because it's such a mass and similar things happen in uh, the late 90s on Yahoo message boards uh, with tech stocks. But here uh, it was more widespread. And then you, with Robinhood, you didn't have the consequence associated with uh, having trading fees associated with uh, you know coming in and out of the stock. But in this circumstance, it was it almost had a religious fervor to it, this notion of sticking it to the man, uh, which are the hedge funds that were on the other side of these trades that would go short. Most individual investors don't go short. Uh, largely it's institutions. And there's this narrative uh, that these hedge funds have constantly screwed the little guy. Uh, and I think that's pretty uh, out there. Yeah, and Melvin Capital particularly was was uh, put up as like one of the, the representatives to take the fall for this whole kind of narrative surrounding that. Yeah, you know, short sellers get a bad rap uh, in being a short seller. I can, I can, you know, say this, but they get a bad rap based off of the notion that they benefit when a stock goes down. But if you think about uh, the incentives that are in Wall Street, so the investment banks, you know, that you saw this in the late 90s, it's a little bit better now, but it's still an issue where they're encouraged to push stock. They collect fees typically uh, when stocks are issued in IPOs or when there's secondaries, or there are deals that occur, uh, or any sort of transaction occurs in a stock. And so people typically, uh, since, since individual investors only really go long, uh, they tend to uh, want the stock to go up because they're long the stock. And the institutions want the stock to go up because they want the individuals to participate in the game. And they'll clip fees and, and clip you know, various charges along the way when there's new stock that's issued uh, or uh, through trading commissions. And so the short seller kind of stands on the other side of that. And it's the one, the short seller is the one that comes forward uh, often and will say, well, look, there's a problem here with this valuation. You know, everybody's getting very excited about this particular issue and they're getting behind it. And, you know, they're critic, you know, it's kind of the contrarian. It's a contrarian against the vested interests of those that all want the stock to go up. But the reality is you don't want to buy a stock that's overpriced because the chances are ultimately it'll reflect the economic value of the underlying business. And short sellers are there as a critic of the potential value. Now, there's a lot of people that will say, oh, they're trying to drive the stock price down. And of course, a short seller will profit if the stock goes down. But the reality is that it also acts as a shock absorber. So if everybody is piling into a stock and it's going straight up, ultimately, you exhaust the level of the number of buyers that'll be in that stock and it'll reach a peak and then it will fall where, you know, it's the the situation where somebody's going to, you know, uh, they want to exit, but they've got to find somebody else to buy and there's no one to buy. There's no one to take the seat in the burning theater. Right, right. right. Uh, And the short seller who short that stock, well, to make their profits, ultimately, they have to buy. 
So it acts as a shock absorber when the stock comes down. And it's also a shock absorber on the on the high end. But the short seller provides another alternative view that's in the market that'll question the established narrative that is adopted by the institutions. Of course, the holders of a particular stock, they don't want to hear any critique associated with issues that are associated with the company because they want the stock to continue to go higher. Right. And this this feeds confirmation bias, which we've talked about a number of times. Any conversation around these kind of issues starts to get you into this terrain where if you're advocating for the company to increase in value, you only want to see positive evidence that supports that narrative because you want to be right and you want the world to make sense. Over time, as you come incentivized for a certain narrative to play out, anyone who is a contrarian kind of becomes Becomes the enemy, right? So it's it's easy for short sellers to be the black hats here because no one's advocating for that, right? The company itself is trying to do pull all the levers possible to increase the value, and all the shareholders that want it to increase are with them, right? So yeah. if you're the short seller, no one's with you to make it drop. Well, and nobody thinks about the investor that didn't buy because they, you know, perhaps they saw a short report. Or perhaps they they recognized there was a high short interest in the stock. And historically, prior to the last 12 months, there have been brief moments where this isn't the, tro- the, the case. But historically, the most indicative quantitative indicator of the performance of a stock will be the level of short interest. So a high level of short interest tends to outperform on the downside means you, you'll you'll do better than the market if you short those stocks or don't buy them, uh, but buy everything that doesn't have a short interest by about eight or nine percent historically prior to two thousand nineteen. Yeah. So interestingly, with GameStop in uh, January, there was a set of factors that kind of lined people up into this. First off, uh, Michael Burre and this this notion of of actually having kind of a uh, longer term win by GameStop rising based on pivoting that was going for it alongside this um, notion of a of sort of a stick it to sh- short selling in- institutional investors uh, from the outside and then also just the selfish motivation of watching this thing rise in value and participating in that and getting to make your fortune from the comfort of your own computer <laughs> wearing yes. your pajama bottoms and becoming a millionaire and and you know all of this was front and center amazing how much mainstream media uh, was covering uh, Robinhood accounts and and GameStop. It was like something out of fiction. Yeah, it definitely has changed the game. And uh, a lot of institutions now are paying attention to what's being said on Reddit boards. You know, they're adapting to uh, this changed environment. So this is kind of a harbinger for things to come when well, it comes to... it's hard to know because how long does it last? Uh, you know, GameStop went from, you know, roughly, uh, you know, I want to say, you know, it was a single digit stock early in 2020. Uh, and then it reached a peak well over $400 a share in the pre-market one day. Um, so just a massive, massive yeah. uh, rise. And then when it broke, it eventually broke 40. Uh, I believe it was 40. Maybe, maybe it didn't get that low, but it was somewhere in that neighborhood. Uh, and then today it's at 140. So, you know, will it see, you know, uh, over 300 again? I'm skeptical, but who knows with enough stimulus dollars and, you know, Reddit hands, it's still the most talked about stock on Reddit today. 
and there's still a lot of people that are trying to go, you know, play the game. At this price level, from a fundamental standpoint, I think it's almost uh, impossible to justify, uh, though I'm sure there are narratives that people can dream about that can get them there. Uh, so it's really this speculative trading sardine, you know, where who knows where it goes. It's very slippery. You can't really get your hand around it. Yeah, using it as a guidepost for the future is probably not wise. No, but there is an element that has to be uh, recognized in the market now. Uh, the retail investor is back, and they are not playing by the rules that uh, others have in the past. Um, and you saw this in the dot-com era where people started trading off of clicks and eyeballs and things of that nature, where traditional metrics didn't fit price appreciation. So they just changed, they moved the goalposts. They, you know, would use other things. And the funny thing, and you know, you got to have some respect for the, uh, wa- the Wall Street bets crowd. A lot of them recognize that they don't know what they're doing. Yeah. But... They've crushed uh, the professionals in terms of their returns, at least last year. Uh, But that comes with some hubris. And we all know that uh, eventually when you think that everything, that you're unstoppable, that's when you take the most risk and uh, you typically suffer the greatest fall. Pride goeth before the fall, so they say. It does feel like uh, sort of a, a risky scenario all the way around I just just looking at it from the outside I, I, I just um, you, you know you, you kind of felt like there was there was no predicting where how this would turn out for any given person but if you frame it a little bit differently where you're just going to have fun right and uh, people look at this as I'm going to do something that's really stupid but it's going to be very entertaining to me then you know maybe they put in a few hundred dollars and buy a couple of shares of GameStop, and they can be part of something uh, that is really wild, and uh, there's some thrills they may be able to derive from it. It's like riding a Kawasaki Invader back in the (laughs) 1980s in a snowstorm. (laughs) I mean, I think if you approach it from the, the mindset of, you know, this is savings and investment, then those people definitely would are going to get hurt. If people approach GameStop as, well, this is something fun to do. I'm going. I'm willing to lose this money, uh, and that's okay because I'm getting entertainment out of it. Much like you know, you go to the movies, you you spend forty bucks or whatever it is uh, to to go after you have all your snacks, and and you're never going to get that back. But we don't think of that as being something that's really lost. Whereas you know, traditional view of investing in stocks is that uh, you know you put the money in, into a particular investment and then uh, when it's gone, it's gone. When you go to the casino, often we expect not to come out of the casino with more money than we left with. And so this is gambling. I, I don't think that there's necessarily a problem with that. It's not particularly good for society because capital markets are supposed to be there for us to have the appropriate allocation of resources to economic actors and... When people act irrationally and they invest, they use the stock market as a casino, then you get mispricings. And for instance, if GameStop, they, they didn't do this, which I think 
you know, personally, that was a huge faux pas or miss, miss on their standpoint, from their standpoint, maybe there were some regulatory issues with it, but they should have issued stock. You know, when the stock was trading well over its value in the hundreds, they should have come to market and issued stock to, to satisfy the demand so that they could then use the, the proceeds from that to improve their business. But, you know, they didn't do that. Now, AMC Theaters, which was also caught up at the same time as GameStop, they did come to market. That company was on the way to bankruptcy. And now it looks very much like they're not going to be headed there unless trends don't change. With And it, it's likely things are going to improve there with COVID subsiding. Uh, but, you know, they took advantage of the rise in their stock price. And I believe they raised over a billion dollars worth of uh, new capital. Amazing. Yeah. And you're, you're correct. I I feel like there's a team element here that made it entertaining for people just for, you know, if, if you were doing this kind of as a, as a bit of a uh, lark and not, not taking it too seriously or putting too much money in it, there was kind of a, like a, a a sense of unity that you were part of this interesting movement that was going to be possibly historically uh, (laughs) valuable in some sense. And so there, the value of, participating was beyond just make some money for yourself. There was this uh, almost like a sports betting field. Yeah, I mean, to some degree, or were you amused? You know, did it provide you with some uh, intellectual stimulation uh, to participate and be part of that phenomena? And so, you know, I could see that, but I I just don't know that it's healthy uh, because the financial markets, they do serve a purpose, but this is a totally different conversation. I mean, personally, and I'm, I'm in the industry. Um, I do it. I love uh, being part of the industry and I love all of the intricacies associated with financial analysis and participating in the markets, but there's way too many people that are doing it, right? Uh, there's just, it's kind of like we all live on this island where uh, there are coconuts and pineapples and uh, there are people that go and harvest the coconuts and the pineapples. And then there are some people that trade and they make options on, you know, coconuts and pineapples and their relative value compared to each other. Uh, and that's right now in the United States, it kind of feels like that's about half of the population is betting on the fl- price fluctuations of coconuts and pineapples where, uh, you know, the, the other half are actually making them. Yeah, and it be, it becomes this very abstract situation that has a lot of contingencies built into it, and it's much much more risky because it's all trading on the mind, right? It's like yeah. the other people's uh, ability to buy into this is critical to sustain the effort. And uh, I guess there's always a ton of risk involved with anything like this. One thing that might be a, an outcome is that more people have an opportunity to learn from this, uh, whether they benefit or, or lose, it, it does hopefully serve some lessons as about, you know, you'd probably inspire people to, to really learn more about a company's future and how to analyze it, which could be a good thing. It could be a good thing. And, you know, to the extent that Robin Hood's whole mission supposedly uh, was to democratize investment, and there's a big disparity between people that own assets and people don't own assets in the United States. Uh, And you've really seen that disparity grow. Uh, So to the extent individuals learn about saving and investing, I don't think GameStop is a good example. You know, I think uh, that's, that's not investing. That's, that's, that's really gambling. It is a bit of a caricature of the 
Yeah. And, but at the same point in time, maybe that's like you're saying, uh, the gateway stock, you know, that gets people to learn more and become educated, uh, and, you know, perhaps learn through mistakes, but it certainly has been a new element that was not present before that we all have to take note of. All right. Interesting times in 2021. Yes. Okay. We'll talk to you again soon. Thank you for spending your time listening to the Mental Models Podcast. Content matters because your brain does not exist in a job. Please subscribe and like Mental Models Podcast. The five-starred book, Understanding Behavioral Bias, A Guide to Improving Financial Decision Making, is available through Amazon. This book will help you overcome the biases that are keeping you from investing success. The Mental Models Podcast can be found on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Overcast, iHeartRadio, and Stitcher. Please subscribe and thank you for listening.